ladies and gentlemen. Can you hear me? You always tell me a week after that you couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> but I try my best. Thank you very much for being with us this afternoon at the final installment of our journey through the 32 Beethoven sonatas. We have reached the final stage. It had been a very long trip indeed. Almost three years, if I'm correct. I'm very sorry that the journey is finished, but at the same time, it's also a wonderful feeling of uh, discovery. And it's never finished, because uh, there will be further journeys. <laughs> All the previous occasions I started with music, but I decided to start with words now. It's very, very difficult to talk about Beethoven sonatas, but especially difficult to talk about the final three, because they are just so great that words fail at least my words. <laughs> Indeed, you would have to be somebody like Thomas Mann, who in his wonderful novel Dr. Faustus gave what to me is the most beautiful and the most valid description of the final piano sonata, Opus 111. So poetic, and to me Thomas Mann's description says much more than all the musicologists put together. Uh, certain musicologists have speculated that Beethoven left the final piano sonata unfinished, that it is a fragment. And Thomas Mann very beautifully explains how wrong that view is because there's nothing unfinished about the final piano sonata. Beethoven knew very well that this was to be the last sonata. He had been written piano sonatas for over 30 years now. And at the end of his life, he knew that he will still write something for the piano. Indeed, he had written a series of bagatelles and most importantly, the magnificent Diabelli variations, but as far as piano sonatas are concerned, he had nothing more to say. The three sonatas were written somewhere between 1820 and 1822, and it's obvious from Beethoven's sketches and his sketchbooks that he was working on them simultaneously, not individually. So this is very much a triptych, like Mozart's final three symphonies are, or a little bit later, the last three piano sonatas by Franz Schubert. And there are many, many motives and elements that unite these three masterpieces. Also very important are the biographical details that we know from Beethoven's life and from his letters. His health had been deteriorating rapidly. 
the hearing is practically gone, which is, which is a great tragedy, but this had been with him for the last 20 years or so. And also the struggling circumstances of his private life uh, when he tried to take custody of his nephew, Karl, and struggling with the Austrian authorities to, to be able to look after his nephew. And this is all very much part of these final three sonatas. Musically speaking, we are on the threshold of the last three last string quartets and also the Missa Solemnis which, which is one of the greatest works of Beethoven or by anybody he, had, he was working on the Missa Solemnis at the same time as he was working on the piano sonatas uh, there are many points in the sonatas I mean these are purely instrumental pieces no vocal elements in it and no text written to it and yet the religious feeling is to me omnipresent if we look at something like this Arioso dolente, or Klagender Gesang, lamenting song from the A flat major sonata, opus 110. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with Bach's St. John Passion, where there is the aria for alto with the viola da gamba. Es ist vollbracht. It is consummated. This is the moment where Christ dies. And it's a straight quotation from the Bach Passion into the Beethoven Sonata, so it's quite obvious what he was thinking about. After this arioso dolente, we get the first of the fugues. think I'm speculating too much if I think of the Arioso Dolente as the Agnus Dei of the Missa 
and this one is the Dona Nobis Spatium. You could sing the words Dona Nobis Spatium, Dona Nobis Spatium. There are no words, but I think it's good to have certain associations here. Music is not just a sequence of notes. Uh, in the E major sonata, opus 109, in the final movement, which is a theme with variations, the fifth variation goes like this. to me the words credo, credo, credo in unum deum, yeah? So, and also in the Missa Solomnis, also there we have the credo, I believe in one God. Not really the music of an atheist. So, as a listener, you are welcome to, to have whatever beliefs or a lack of belief, but I think as a performer or even as a listener of Beethoven, we have to try to get on his wavelength. Now, let's look at the sonatas individually because Although they are a triptych and they belong together, they also have very distinct individual characters and qualities. It's quite important that Beethoven gave separate opus numbers to these works and he did not unite them as under one opus number as he did before with Opus 2, there were three sonatas, Opus 10, there were three, and Opus 31, there were also three. But here, towards the end of his life, he felt that the works were just too important. They have to have their separate own Opus numbers. Let me play the beginning of Opus 109. This is the exposition. 
I don't measure music by stopwatch, but I don't think there is another Beethoven sonata with such a short exposition. It's incredible how concentrated and how compact it is. It's over in no time. Mm, most of you remember the G major sonata a few months ago, Opus 79. And the final movement of that sonata charming but relatively unimportant movement but let me just play this as a chorale now and transpose it down a third and then add some figurations we have the same music <laughs> but, but how different it is in expression and in character uh, to me the, the miracle of this movement is that it does not begin it continues it comes from somewhere there is no distinct beginning and it is really very very poetic indeed one doesn't feel any downbeats or any bar lines, it just floats. And and these seven bars constitute the first subject. That's it. Um, Beethoven writes, vivace ma non troppo, lively but not too much. And the liveliness is expressed by these complementary semi-quaver movements. Sort of hand in hand, complementing each other. And also it's very unusual that this movement only has two themes. Most classical sonata movements have at least three distinct themes. The main theme, the secondary theme, and the closing theme. And here, Beethoven only uses two themes, and both have different characters, different tempi, and, and a completely different meter even. The first theme, as I said, vivace ma non troppo, and the second one is adagio, espressivo. However, if you have spent long years with this sonata, and I spent about three and a half decades, and I'm still nowhere near solving the mysteries of it. It's a very 
ambiguous, very mysterious movement that also many listeners, I think you will agree with me, it's very difficult to grasp the first movement of Opus 109. Basically because of the dualism of these two themes. Uh, it's good to, to find a pulse as an interpreter that unites them. So, if the first theme had this tempo... Then the slow one... Uh, one you feel that there is a relationship between these two tempi. One is lively, the other one is slow, but they share the same heartbeat. And this is how we, f we have a sense of unity. The development section only uses the principal theme, never touches the second subject. Capitulation, as you well recognize it. However, it is in forte now, and it's a, it's a confirmation. There is none of the hesitation of the beginning of the movement, and also the two hands are very far apart. We will see this often in the last three sonatas. Don't forget that this keyboard that you are seeing here is much wider than Beethoven's keyboard was. It's about three octaves wider. And when Beethoven writes something like this, he is using the top and the bottom of the keyboard with which he wants to show the earth and the heavens. And somewhere the human being is in, bet in between those. So, the second time, the second subject comes. And you remember in the exposition here, Beethoven wrote a variation of the second subject. Also in the recapitulation, but listen to the harmonies here, how modern, how daring they are. It's a 
C major dominant seventh chord and, and the C major chord, nothing could be simpler than that. But it sounds like an incredibly wild dissonant chord in this context. It's also the only time Beethoven writes fortissimo. A lot of this music sounds improvisatory. Sounds like an improvisation, but don't believe what you hear because it's very, very carefully thought out and his instructions are incredibly detailed in this sonata. Um, now let me just play the end of the movement, the coda. like the motto of the whole movement. He leaves the semi-quaver motion and presents the theme like a beautiful, solemn chorale. And back to the first theme. constant change of minor, major, and the major wins. There is no break, it's attacca immediately. This incredibly dramatic movement starts in E minor, same tonality but in the minor, prestissimo, extremely fast, in 6-8 time, so you have to listen to this. That's the tempo. And you couldn't imagine a, a larger contrast, how, how this must have shocked the listeners of Beethoven's time. Uh, there is this very peaceful E major, and then... Walpurgis Nacht in Goethe's Faust, or, or like indeed Inferno in the Divine Comedy. 
And always listen to the bass. It's like a passacaglia. That's the main motive that we will see how he develops this. Uh, then this prestissimo middle movement is also in sonata form. Again, very unusual. We have two opening movements, both in sonata form, and both are very short. So the proportions of the late sonatas is, are very, very different from the earlier ones. If you remember sonatas like the Waldstein sonata or, or the Appassionata, the opening movements were gigantic and the opening movements were carrying the main weight of the sonata. Not so here. The final movements become more and more important. And really, to me, one of the greatest achievements of Beethoven is that he can carry through this incredible tension through till the very end. And his last movements never fall down. I, th I think that no composer after Beethoven could keep that up to the very end, not, not even Schubert, not, certainly not the others. <laughs> Sorry, that's... The, that's a <laughs> how, how often we, we say, oh, what a wonderful piece of Brahms and oh, pity about the last movement. <laughs> And we never say that with Beethoven, and certainly not with his predecessors. I don't know any weak last movement of Mozart and nor of Haydn. But somehow the 19th century had, had a problem with this. <laughs> and uh, and Beethoven, Beethoven, it's his fault because he did it so well. It was very, very difficult to continue. So, back to the prestissimo. Um, Ready on the dominant. You can hear the chromatics. This passus duriculus. This we, we know from the baroque rhetorics. The the hard way in, in that it's like like Christ carrying the cross. And that's the end of the exposition. Now let's go on because there now comes a very mysterious section. I told you about this, the bass. And now we have it in the upper voices as a canon. can 
here the two voices. And underneath we have this tremolo, like a timpani. this point when the bass moves from B natural a semitone up to C natural there's the fermata here this is a very unusual passage and this has served as material for musicologists to write a doctoral thesis about. I'm not going to do that now, don't worry. So. At this point, Beethoven writes una corda, so he, he wants the keyboard to move on to a position where the hammer only strikes one string. It is very difficult or almost impossible to reproduce it on a modern piano because on a period instrument this had a very distinct color indeed. So I did ask my technician to make it absolutely extreme, but it's not quite what the forte piano did. Mm. and the inversion of this theme in the bass together and then there's a fermata so theme and inversion but if you look at this theme it's like a palindrome something that's the same backwards and forwards. We have that in, in literature. I'm sure there are English palindromes. There are palindromes in every language. But uh, you hear it backwards and forwards simultaneously. And then recapitulation. in this movement Beethoven writes espressivo on this theme which also means with expression but also a little bit slower than the main tempo because immediately after that he writes a tempo back to the main tempo
was this infernal movement. And now comes the most beautiful movement to me that Beethoven ever wrote, if I may say so, but this is very subjective. Everybody can have a favorite movement, and mine is this. Uh, theme and variations, six variations, and let me just play the theme. are repeated, then the second part. Sixteen bars are also repeated. So we have a very symmetrical structure here. Twice sixteen bars, both parts repeated. Um, this theme is like a sarabande. Uh, if you listen to a Bach sarabande, inspired by, by Bach and the movement of a sarabande. Uh, another sarabande kind of music that you know very well. The aria of Bach's Goldberg variations. And Beethoven must have known the Goldberg variations intimately well, although there is no evidence to this. Bach's music was not known and not performed in Beethoven's time. If somebody wanted to know Bach, one had to go to, to a library of, or to private collections, great collectors and music lovers who had manuscripts or first editions of Bach and Beethoven must have seen this somewhere because the structure of the final movement of Opus 109 is, is obviously modeled after the Goldberg variations. Of course there we have aria with 30 variations. Here we have only theme and six variations but like in the Bach work at the end of the movement, the theme returns in great simplicity. 
and completes a circle where beginning and end meet. Um, let me describe in a nutshell the six variations. The first one is like an Italian opera aria. Espressivo, we have a wonderful expressive melody, and he, it's very interesting that although a lot of this late music is incredibly polyphonic and full of counterpoint, but here we have a very distinct melody and accompaniment. I play the second part now. variation is like a mosaic. It's, you, you can recognize particles and little molecules of the theme and it's like a, like a pointillistic painting where out of the little dots and points the picture emerges. Remember the theme again. And now this variation. Beethoven's imagination and fantasy is so endless and boundless that instead of a mechanical repetition of this section, he writes out a further variation for the repeat. Back to the mosaic. Uh, the interval of a descending third is the main element of this movement and you can hear it all, all over the place. For the next variation, Beethoven changes the character and the tempo and the meter. It's allegro vivace, it's 2-4 and it's a very quick variation. Uh, 
mentioned the third descending and as an inversion we have the ascending thirds so yeah for the next variation again he goes back to triple time and writes piacevole a little bit slower than the theme is his instruction with kindness and we can hear already the late string quartets in this music it's very beautifully written four-part counterpoint you can hear the four instruments viola now the cello second violin variation is as I showed you before the credo variation right out of the Missa Solemnis when we have the, in the Beethoven credo in the Missa it's not in this key but it's the same music and this is a very Bachian fugato in a very lyrical sonata something like like a sculpture it's it's made made out of marble and it's it has such a incredible gravity and uh, monumentality uh, after this brief fugato wonderful cut in a film suddenly the whole world changes and we are back in the tempo of the theme uh, the movement of the sarabande and we hear the theme in the middle voice in the alto voice changes it to the soprano voice and 
keeping the same pulse of the sarabande in the accompaniment, he is changing the note values, larger and larger units and smaller and smaller note values. We started with crotchets, then in quavers, then in triplets, semi-quavers, uh, demi-semi-quavers, and as the smallest note value, the trill. Let me just play it again. Now, quavers. Triplets, semi quavers, demi semi quavers, now the free trill. to the lowest bass. It's indeed, has nothing more to do with the piano. The piano is a miserable instrument, but it's, it has to be like an earthquake. And again, this, uh, from, from the peaceful harmony, we have reached an absolute ecstasy here. to the middle voice and the bass is playing the demi-semi-quavers and on the absolute top of the keyboard you have like lightning little stars the notes of the theme homecoming just like in the Goldberg variations and the second time it's almost identical to the beginning of the movement but it's even more simple because he takes out the arpeggi and uh,
arpeggio here is one asks for a minimal little ritardando and the pedal to be held down on the final chord. Uh, this is a most poetic sonata to me that has no beginning and no end. It's not a real ending. And indeed, when one plays this in a concert, I don't think that applause is appropriate here. We performers, we are always very grateful when there is applause <laughs> because, you know, making music is, is not a one-way street. I mean, we have to communicate with each other. But I think you will agree with me that there are certain pieces of music where the best response is silence. This is one of them. And Opus 111 is another one. 